Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us every time we read your word, every time we hear it, and you apply it to our hearts and minds by your spirit. Lord, do this work in us this morning as we hear from Acts. Help us to see how this matters to us as your people now, uh, 2,000 years later, but still caught up in this same mission. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this week's been a really good week for me because one of my favourite lecturers is up in Brisbane. He's my missions lecturer and he always has fascinating stories about the people that he's worked with around the world, um, the ministry he's been involved in, and all the thinking that he gets to do about helping students like me encounter people from other cultures with the gospel. Um, but every time he comes up, it's not long until the Somali people he used to work with will come up into the conversation. Um, it's really sad to hear about what it's like to be a Christian there. There's probably only a bit more than a thousand Christians in Somalia. And, and Richard, my lecturer, says it seems to be because when you become a Christian there, you don't last very long. If you become a Christian and then you tell your family, your community, either you escape or you get killed. For someone who's obedient to God's mission in the world in Somalia, it's a pretty heavy task to consider what it looks like to follow Jesus when you suffer or are threatened to suffer things like that. Here in Australia, what does it look like to be obedient to what God is doing in the world today through the spread of his gospel through churches like us? I think as we go through these chapters in Acts this morning, we're going to see a few different snapshots, even though it's in a particular situation at a particular time, of what it looks like to be obedient to God's will, no matter what the cost, because of the sake of Jesus. We're going to go through these pretty quickly because there's lots of verses, as you already gathered, but hopefully as we stop along each point, you'll get more and more of that picture of what Paul is doing in his mindset and how that shapes our mindset as followers of Jesus today. Uh, so let's get into it as we go to chapter 21 for the first 16 verses. Uh, you'd remember from the context of the last few weeks that Paul has resolved to go to Jerusalem. He knows that persecution is awaiting him there. He doesn't know what particular persecution except that he will be potentially imprisoned or violence is going to be against him. And these first 16 verses of 21 are all about his journey to getting there, these last few stops on this big voyage. You can read all of these places he stops in in his own time. Luke seems to be really fascinated with ships and sailing, and so you get all these details about cargo and places and stops. But this morning, there's two particular places that he highlights that are really important in understanding the rest of these chapters and the rest of the book of Acts as we understand Paul and his mission from God in these chapters. The first of those is their stop at Tyre. Um, their cargo is getting taken off the ship and they stay there a week. And verse 4 tells us that having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. 
there's really very little detail here. And people can have different opinions of what's going on here, but I don't think this is talking about them communicating to him in a special way, or even that it's contradicting the message that he's heard already. Instead, they seem to be warned about the same thing that he's been warned about, of what's awaiting him in Jerusalem, that he is going to be persecuted, that there's great danger awaiting him there. And because of how much they care for Paul, they can't imagine him going there and facing that. They try to do whatever they can to stop him from experiencing it. And in this part, in this town, we don't even get a response from Paul. There's just another sad farewell like there was last chapter. And he leaves on to the next places. But in the second stop, we get a bigger picture of what he's thinking as people around him are trying to stop him from going. Once he gets to Caesarea, he stays with Philip. You'll notice that in verse 8 to 14. And this is the same Philip who got appointed in Acts 6 as someone helping with the distribution of food so that people weren't missing out that were of particular ethnicities or cultural backgrounds. And then later, once Christians were scattered, when Stephen was martyred, he went out and evangelised many people in chapter 8 until he got to Caesarea and seemed to settle down. So Paul's staying with this same guy and his family. And then eventually a guy comes up and prophesies about what's going to happen to Paul. He takes the things off Paul and puts them on himself and says that the Jews in Jerusalem are going to bind up Paul and deliver him to the Gentiles. And again, just like in the last town, everyone's trying to stop Paul. In verse 12, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. This time the pictures, even the people traveling with Paul, even Luke, as he narrates and writes this account, was saying, no, you can't go. Nothing they could do would persuade him, though. Paul then answers, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart for I'm ready not only to be imprisoned but even to die in Jerusalem for the sake of the Lord Jesus and since he would not be persuaded we ceased and said let the will of the Lord be done they couldn't change his mind he knew he needed to go and that's because for him this was a matter of obedience to Jesus all through Paul's ministry, it's been marked with obedience to Jesus' call and commissioning for him to be a voice, particularly to the Gentiles, in bringing the gospel to them that they might join God's kingdom. And even the thought of death in a place like this is not enough to stop him from doing what God wants in this place. It's the backdrop for these next few chapters as we see how Paul reacts to people rushing at him and seizing him and uh, innocent but thought of as guilty by so many. But it's also, I think, the backdrop for all our lives as Christians. We're going to see more as we keep going from section to section in these chapters of what it might look like for us to have this same resolve in our lives following Jesus this same resolve in being committed to being obedient to God's will in being Christians that proclaim Christ no matter the cost. 
There's going to be a bunch of ways that that plays out in each section. But for you, as you keep going along, keep asking yourself, how is this going to shape me as we go? So moving on, he eventually gets to Jerusalem. There's been lots of stops. But from verse 17, he comes and meets with the Christian leaders there. He meets up with James and all the other leaders, and they hear everything that God's been at work through him and his ministry in bringing Gentiles to faith. And what do they do? They glorify God. It's a great thing to hear of all that's happened. And it's clear before any of the drama starts later in the chapter that there's no animosity between Paul and these guys. They're accepting him as a true teacher and true witness of Jesus in all that he's doing. But there's still a problem in what's been happening there. From verse 20, they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. First, the thing that's clear from this is that the gospel has been at work in the Jews there too. If you've been following along in Acts, you'll see that the focus so far as Paul's been traveling around is the Gentiles coming in and being made God's children in the same way that Jewish believers have access. But it's clear from what they're telling Paul that there's thousands of Christians here too. Not just, I assume, from the start when Peter was proclaiming at Pentecost, but throughout the years as time's gone by. But it appears that just as people have tried to tarnish Paul's reputation as he's gone from place to place, that they've done that amongst the people there in Jerusalem too. They have a plan to try to demonstrate that he is not someone who is even properly a Jew. He's trying to chuck away the law and all the customs that make him who he is. But James and the rest of the leaders, they've got an idea of what's going to help. They suggest in the verses that follow that Paul joins in and helps fund four guys who are doing vows uh, according to probably a temporary Nazarite vow thing where they let their hair go long, they do certain things, they bring certain sacrifices, uh, and then they get it shaved off later. Paul, by helping fund these guys, is doing a really charitable act by giving money towards all of the offerings that need to be made. And he's also joining in and showing that he's someone walking alongside Jewish people who are obedient to the law and showing his own purity as someone who's spent lots of time in Gentile cities before spending time in the temple himself. By doing this, they reason that Paul... Well, that through it, will no, everyone will know that there's nothing in what they've told about you, but that you yourself also live in obedience to the law. So Paul takes them up, and I don't think this is something he had to do. And some commentators, as they're talking through it, they even think that it might have been the wrong thing for him to do. But instead, I think this demonstrates his willingness to show integrity and respect amongst his Jewish people in this place. Paul's MO is to live obediently for the name and glory of Jesus. And so 
publicly helping these four men with these vows. It isn't about him showing off or setting himself up to be someone he isn't. It's about demonstrating that all these lies that have been said about him are not true and that there's no grounds for them to stand on. It's demonstrating that Paul hasn't chucked away the Lord's significance for Jews and he's going to do everything he can to diffuse the situation and silence this false testimony around him. Now, as you think about what's happening there, does it sound familiar? Uh, I've heard many stories from friends where at universities or in their workplaces or in their families, people who are unbelievers say all sorts of things about them that are not true. One of my close friends, she said that because of what she has spoken about sexuality and other issues, um, her friends all tell each other that she hates them, that she ha wants nothing to do with them and that she would never love them for who they are. Have you experienced something like this in your walk with Jesus as you seek to proclaim him in the circles around you? What does it look like for you to respond in a way like this? To not just try to show off and demonstrate that what you are is not what they think. To not just say things for the sake of it, but to demonstrate through what you're acting and going above and beyond what it looks like to be someone who is acting out what you believe. Who teaches and loves all people in the same way. What Paul was teaching these people was not at all what they had this idea of. And so I think through doing this, he's trying in the best of his ability to show that he has integrity in the face of all the lies and falsehood of the teachers around to go, no, I'm not someone who rejects you in this way. But as we get to the next section, it really doesn't go that way, does it? If you look from chapter 1, verse 27 onwards, and this is the part that Ken read out for us, we see a massive persecution breaking out against him, a massive riot, but Paul also taking every opportunity to proclaim Christ even in the midst of this. Let me read from verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia... Seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple." Rather than just this claim that Paul was chucking out the law, they're claiming that he's going against the people themselves and their temple, and he's defiling this temple with these rumours of him bringing in a Gentile. If he had done that, that'd be a huge problem. It'd make the whole temple unclean, and they'd have to go through them sort of purification process. But it's making it clear here that this is not what he did. They were only assuming it based on what they saw. And they make such a big fuss as they seize him, as they lock up the temple to get it purified, and as they try to kill him, that the Roman soldiers take notice. 
You'll see that the, the Tribune sends troops over and they can't even figure out what's going on because of all the noises and people saying different things. And so they seize Paul and start taking him into the barracks themselves for questioning. At this point, I think you expect the next scene to be Paul going into the barracks, to be them questioning him and going on in that way. But it's not what happens. After an exchange in Greek that reveals he's a citizen of Tarsus and that he's not this revolutionary leader that they thought he was, he gains permission to speak in front of this crowd and he takes the opportunity to confront the wrongs of the crowd and show them Jesus and what he's done. And he begins in chapter 22, and he starts with his Jewish credentials first. And so look in verse 3. I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Sicilia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who are there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Through this start of his defence, Paul's trying to back up his Jewishness in two ways. Starts with his education and then his past persecution of Christians. With his education, he says that even though he's born in Tarsus, he was raised in Jerusalem and he was raised in the proper way and not just the proper way, but under a really impressive leader. He was educated under Gamaliel, who was at the time one of the most respected Pharisee law experts of the day. And he's shown in his zealousness in the same way the crowd has in his past of seeking out Christians, whether men or women, to capture them and bring them over to be killed because he believed they were blaspheming God. He shows some connection with the people there and saying, hey, this, this was me, I was like this. But before he goes on any longer, he moves to this conversion experience on Damascus Road. This is largely the same as what we had quite some time ago when we went through Acts 9. And so if you want to compare it to that later, that would be a really good thing. But it's still the fundamentals that's going on. There's still this great light from heaven that comes out and makes him and others fall. He gets blinded. He has an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus who commands him what to do. And then God uses this respected guy, Ananias, in Damascus to give him his sight back and to confirm his commission as a witness for Jesus. I think the small differences in the storytelling that you'll notice as you compare the chapters they're only Paul's way of emphasising that this change in direction is all about obedience to God and, by extension, obedience to his son Jesus and his will. None of what he's done has been against God as he turned from persecuting Christians to teaching and building up and discipling Christians. This is all him being obedient to the same God that they're seeking to be to. 
The final part of his defense, though, is a vision picture that we haven't actually heard yet before in Acts. Let me read from verse 17. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. This vision that he has seems to be a vision of Jesus, I think is communicating three things. First, it's communicating that Paul has known about this hostile response from the beginning. From the time he was there, early days, right till now, he knew from Jesus that people would reject him and his testimony because of their hardness of heart. This isn't catching him by surprise. He knew all of this sort of thing would happen if he returned to Jerusalem. By returning, he knew exactly what was awaiting him. Second, he's showing the irony and reversal that he now stands in the sort of place that Stephen did. Stephen, who was another one of those um, people chosen in Acts 6 to help with the distribution, and then was proclaiming Jesus and became the first Christian to die because of their witness of Jesus. He was there approving of and helping out what was happening, and yet now he stands in a similar place of having this gaze of Jesus telling him um, all these things as someone who's now in front of people about to be on trial and about to experience more and more persecution in his captivity. And I think the final quick third thing is that God's plan for him particularly in the way that he's speaking to this crowd is centred around the Gentiles. And so to sum up, this whole defence, I think is Paul trying to make it clear that he's definitely a Jew, but he's also definitely a Christian, and he's being obedient to God in proclaiming Christ to Gentiles and what he's doing. And it's at this point, it's at this mention of the Jewish people in Jerusalem and of Paul's mission to the Gentiles that the crowd gets all riled up again, as you might expect. They can't stand the thought of that. And so to break it all up, that commander, the tribune, rushes back, him back into the barracks and he still doesn't know what's going on. He was speaking in Hebrew, so the commander probably didn't have an idea. And so he's about to start some violent questioning for Paul to get to the bottom of it. And just before they start, just while he's being stretched out and ready to be whipped, Paul reveals slowly that he's not just any kind of citizen, he's a Roman citizen by birth. And that puts him above even this commander who had to buy his citizenship, probably through a bribe or something like that. They shouldn't even be able to bind him the way they have, let alone the thought of beating him to interrogate him. He shouldn't have had to endure any of this with this kind of standing, and yet he chose to. And he could have just let himself be carried over 
and then stopped this interrogation, but he didn't. He took the opportunity to set the truth right about who he is, but more importantly, about his Lord, Jesus, and what it looked like for him to be obedient to him. He seems to have thought that by doing it this way, this was the best opportunity that in every circumstance he could proclaim Christ and what he has done. Are there situations like this for you as it pops up? Situations where people who are either opposed to what you believe or it's just really hard to talk about. There's an opportunity that comes up, but you could really easily take the easy way out. I think the way that Paul's acting here goes and encourages us to take up opportunities, even in the face of a hostile, rioting crowd, to be able to declare the amazing thing of what Jesus has done. This comes up for me all the time. I'm someone who's really extroverted and I'm chatting to people all the time. And even though that's an easy thing for me, if I find out someone has a really conflicting view about the world and faith to me, sometimes I'm like, oh, I don't know if I can do it today. I don't know if I have the energy. I'm not sure if I can put up with what's gonna happen if someone rejects me or anything that they might do. They might be an Uber driver of mine and I'm worried, are they even gonna drop me off at the right spot? <laughs> but I think seeing Paul act this way helps us see what it looks like to be a Christian in these circumstances. It doesn't look like shrinking back or taking the easy way or just letting things happen if they're panning out all right. It looks like taking every opportunity to proclaim Christ and what he's done in your life, but most importantly, of what he's offered to all that would have faith in him. What might it look like as you go about being obedient to God and his mission to take up opportunities like this to proclaim Jesus? Well, we'll keep going. The next section is his second defense in these passages. Is what not the end of his questioning. This um, tribune, he gets really curious and wants to actually hear what's at the heart of this. And so he brings him to all this full council of Jewish pre high priests, well, chief priests, sorry, and all the council, and set them before him, them to give an answer. He seems to grasp that there's some sort of Jewish dispute going on rather than some sort of civil unrest that they first thought. And so he's going to get to the bottom of things as they interrogate him or Paul gives a defense but it starts out really explosively. Paul, it says in verse 1, and looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. All right, there's a lot going on here. Uh, Paul's starting off by saying, 
he is in good conscience for all he's acted because he knows he has been obedient to God and Jesus in all that he's commanded. It's pretty simple, but obviously there's some tension in the room and the high priest is thinking, no, this is blasphemy. How could you say that when you've acted this way or taught this way and gets him to be struck? And then Paul fires it up even more in the way that he stoops back at them and says that it's God that's going to strike them. That whitewashed wall picture seems to be talking about them being hypocrites. So they look good on the outside, but it's really just covering up something else. And so what are they doing? They're questioning him because they think he's discarded the law, but they themselves, in the way that they've been called to strike him, they're breaking it too. And then drama doesn't end. There's this question of how Paul could address this high priest this way based on what it looks like in Scripture to honour people in these positions. And there's a few different ways of understanding what's going on, and people say different things. Some say that Paul genuinely didn't know that this guy was the high priest. And so when he kind of clapped back in that way, he was doing it not uh, intentionally to a high priest. Some people say that. Others say that it's actually because he didn't think he was a legitimate high priest. So even though scripture calls you not to do that, he was making this comment because he doesn't think he's someone who has at all has integrity, who's been got in as someone corrupt, all those sorts of possibilities. Some say he even misspoke, similar to the guys that say he did the wrong thing earlier. But I think it's probably a mixture of the first two. Um, it's quite possible that they just did genuinely didn't know because he's been out of Jerusalem who it was. He might not have been wearing the full get-up because this is a pretty impromptu meeting to get things going. But also he seems to definitely be making a comment about who this is. He's making a comment to say, if you are the person in responsible for all the people and yet you are breaking the law so fragrantly yourself, then what is going on? How can you be someone representing God to the people? I think it's a bit of both of those things. But it doesn't end there. Paul gets the drama going even more when he brings up the resurrection. Let me read from verse 6. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. I think this is actually part of his summary of the gospel. Now, some people think that this is just him trying to incite drama and try to get them fighting against themselves so that they don't fight him. There might be a bit of that going on. But if you go through all of the speeches Paul does and the way that he communicates the gospel... The resurrection and the hope for believers in it is key in basically all of them. I think this is him actually testifying about Jesus, but in a way that actually shows how divided these people are in his midst that ought to know what is true, but even themselves can't come to an agreement. The Sadducees famously don't believe in the resurrection. Um, the Pharisees do. 
the Sadducees don't believe in this, this idea of kind of angels and spirits, maybe people in an afterlife. The Pharisees do. And so fighting breaks out. It's even higher drama. And the Pharisees come to the point of saying, no, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? It becomes clear even in that audience that he's innocent. And yet the people there, the rulers of the um, Roman soldiers, they go, no, he's going to get torn apart if he stays here. And they take him back in. Another reason why I think this is testimony about Jesus and the truth of the gospel is the following night with what the Lord says to him in verse 11. He says, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. I think this is again the Lord Jesus speaking to him and saying, You have done well. You have testified about me rightly. You've spoken the truth. And even though it's just about this resurrection picture, as we've heard already at communion this morning and as we've sung, there's this big picture of the gospel that that's capturing up. There's no resurrection unless he was killed and killed for the sins of all sinners. It's in this that there is hope for those who are dead and in nothing else. And if you're with us this morning and you really haven't got to hear the gospel before or you're not a believer and just want to keep exploring Jesus more, please talk to someone or talk to me because this is such a small summary here and yet the picture of this message is a rich and beautiful one and one that we don't want you to miss as you go home today. So how do we think through this of what Jesus is saying to him? Seems like he's saying it's going to keep going rough and he'll need courage because he's not going to die in Jerusalem. He is going to head over to Rome. Along the way, there's going to be place after place after place that he still has opportunity to proclaim Jesus in despite being less free than he ever has been. What does that look like for us here? in Australia. There's many situations, again, where we're tempted as we start sharing by negative responses just to go, okay, no, I'm going to stay quiet. There's situations where we know we're going to walk into a hostile environment that doesn't believe in the truth about Jesus. And yet, this is a picture of standing firm in the way we testify to him. Even if we're hit, even if we're getting a threat on our jobs, even if it looks like our family's disowning us, even if it looks like the Somali Christians who are killed because they trust in Jesus, we're still all called to stand firm in giving a testimony to him in the good news of the gospel that brings people life and the only way to hope. What are situations in your life where this could come up, where you need to be reminded to stand firm in testifying to the gospel of Jesus? As we go to the last little bit of the passage today, we're only going to look at it briefly, but from verse 12 to 35, 
I think it shows clearly that Paul and us today can trust in God's unstoppable mission. So this very thing he's promised him in verse 11 and to what he's promised us, that he will keep bringing people into his kingdom, that he will save people for himself. From verse 12, there's more than 40 Jews that come together to make this huge oath to not drink or eat until they kill Paul. And they're not just doing it themselves, they're colluding with the people in the high council to get to summon him, and just before he comes in for more questioning, they're going to kill him. And it seems like a great plan. How could he, in his smallness, defend against it? But in God's providence, Paul's sister's son somehow manages to find out, and he gets to visit Paul where he is, and then Paul gets to get him to the Roman commander, and then he manages to convince the commander that what he's saying is true, and the commander's so worried about what this might cause that he gets an army in the night to escort Paul to Felix the governor down the road with a letter of his innocence. What Paul was told in verse 11 is trustworthy. He can be confident that God will bring him all the way to the place that God wants him. He might have been captured and handed over, but Paul won't die in Jerusalem. And despite losing seemingly all his freedom, God will use him again and again in the chapters right until the end of the book to proclaim Jesus. He might be captive as this biggest evangelist in Acts so far, but God's mission isn't stopped and more and more people will come to faith in Jesus. As we get to the end this morning, it's this mission that continues today. It's the same mission that's continued for the last 2,000 years. It's the same thing God is doing in Upper Mount Gravatt through churches like ours as he calls people to faith in Jesus through the proclamation of his word, through people like you and me, ordinary believers as they speak the gospel, as they are obedient to God's will in his mission, as, they, as we go about with integrity in the face of any opposition and falsehood and slander against us, being committed to taking every opportunity to speak about him and stand firm in the truth, no matter what would come up against us. God works powerfully here and saves people all around the world every day, and more and more Christians are coming to know him. As we hear about stories of people suffering greatly for the gospel, rather than being worried about what might happen here, rather than being discouraged or saddened, why not consider and pray what it might look like for us in a space that's easy at times, but in a space with much opportunity to speak of Jesus, to take up this call to be his witnesses wherever we are, in our families and in our workplaces, because there's no other hope in the world of life forever except through him. Let's pray to that end as we finish up. Heavenly Father, we thank you that there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved except the Lord Jesus. That it's only through faith in his death and resurrection and the grace offered to us of forgiveness and life that we can know you and be with you and your people forever. 
Lord, as we consider the world around us, help us to be obedient to your call, to be people proclaiming Christ in all situations, knowing that you are trustworthy and good and that you will call people to yourself as your word goes out. Lord, help us to be bold, to be encouraged by your spirit to speak and to rejoice as you call people and bring people to yourself in our community and all around the world, for Jesus' sake. Amen.